Chuck Smeaton from the Royal Institution of Australia, and this is the Cosmos Briefing Podcast. Today, we talk to Associate Professor Michael Beard, head of the Viral Pathogenesis Research Laboratory at the University of Adelaide. Our topic is the controversial gain-of-function research, a technique in virology and genetics which is often used to knock a function into a virus to change its transmissibility. This began in 2005 when a team of researchers released a paper detailing how they'd revived an H1N1 virus sample collected from the Spanish flu, the same virus behind swine flu and the general influenza that circulates in our community today. The idea is that this kind of research helps us learn more about how a virus evolves, predict future pandemics, and influences vaccine design. However, there is renewed public focus on the area as there have been claims that this type of research is responsible, via a lab leak, for the current COVID-19 pandemic. Today's interview is hosted by Cosmos journalist Dr Deborah Devis. Michael, it's really lovely to have you on the show today. Can you tell me about what gain-of-function research is in terms of virology? Yeah, so gain-of-function is a term that sort of popped up in, in the public arena, I suppose, given the, the issues we're, we're having around SARS-CoV-2. And so in, in relation to virology, what it means is um, uh, changing a virus to uh, make it more transmission, transmissible or more pathogenic, if you like. So that means greater disease. And so that has all sorts of connotations when you start to think about what that impact could have longer term. So, but it's very important research and it, it tells us a lot of things and maybe we can discuss those a little bit later on. Yeah, absolutely. So that sounds very much like it's a scientific technique that's used to research how, uh, how things evolve, how viruses evolve. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. What kind of techniques would those be? What kind of techniques would you use in gain-of-function Yeah, yeah so there's a, there's a couple of ways you can actually generate gain-of-function mutations. So you can add them um, through molecular techniques in the laboratory. So, for example, we could take the genetic material for a certain virus. Um, let's say, for example, you take the genetic material for SARS-CoV-2 and you introduce some mutations using molecular techniques and then you would see whether that would make the virus infect cells to a greater level. And if you had an animal model, for example, you could see whether that virus, in fact, caused more disease in, in an animal model. So that's one way is that we can change in the, in the lab. We can use um, molecular techniques. The other way to do it is to culture viruses, again, in the lab, but do it under some sort of selective pressure. So, for example, it might be um, a different type of uh, Uh, antibody concentration or a treatment or a drug, for example, and that way you force the evolution of a virus along a little bit quicker. So the virus is trying to evade that selective pressure. Yes. Often that means that the virus will actually pick up mutations naturally um, that make it more pathogenic or or more transmissible, for example. Absolutely, and that sounds like um, those two techniques, one of them is very targeted, making a change to one specific gene to see what would happen, and the other one is looking at those environmental pressures to see how the virus evolves. Yep, exactly. And what can you learn from both types of those techniques and researchers? Well, I suppose it's about trying to work out exactly how viruses uh, evolve to actually infect people or infect animals um, to a higher level and cause disease to a higher level. So it's all about 
staying one step ahead of the virus. So if we fully understand what the virus can do, then we can maybe develop better therapeutics, we can maybe develop better uh, antiviral therapies, and maybe even perhaps uh, inform um, vaccine design, for example. So it's all about staying one step ahead of the virus. And we're, what we're trying to do is um, generate um, evolution in a, in, a, in a test tube, if you like, um, so, so we can inform ourselves as, as to what's happening. Yeah, of course. It sounds like it's a um, know-your-enemy type of situation. So why is it so important to study how viruses evolve in this particular way? What would we miss out on if we weren't doing this type of research? Yeah, I think as I mentioned earlier, it's trying to stay one step ahead of the virus. So what we're trying to do, we're trying to preempt what evolution might do. Mm-hmm. So it can be very important for surveillance, for example. So if we can um, look at the virus in, in a pandemic situation, so for example, let's take the current pandemic with SARS-CoV-2. If we continue to sequence those viruses, which we're doing all the time, we can then pick up mutations. And if we know that those mutations may make the virus more transmissible or may cause more disease, then we can be one step ahead and we can alert the authorities. We can maybe go into lockdown earlier, that sort of thing. So, or vaccinate a population quicker. So it's all about preparedness and and, and surveillance uh, in my my mind. And that sounds like um, it goes hand in hand with genomic sequencing and wide-scale genomic sequencing. So we're able to target those those areas of potential uh, mutations that might lead to some of these outbreaks. So I'm excited to see more of that in the future. Your research is a little bit different. You're doing loss of function research and you're not looking at SARS, even though that's what everybody's talking about at the moment. Mm. Can you Mm. tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, so the research we do, we work on um, flaviviruses mostly, which is dengue, Zika and West West Nile virus, for example, a a strain that's in Australia called Kunjin. And these are similar types of viruses to SARS-CoV-2 in that they're RNA viruses. And so we actually have the genetic material in the lab for those viruses and we make mutations in those viruses. Pretty much most of the mutations that we make will actually decrease the fitness of a virus. And so we're trying to find out what um, proteins in the virus that the virus encodes are important for um, virus replication. So if we knock them out, for example, so that's a, a, a loss of function, if you like. Um, we don't do specifically gain-of-function uh, mutations, but sometimes you might find if you make a mutation in a virus that it ends up being more fit. Mm-hmm. And so um, that way we have to be very careful with what we do with that virus. I should add that In all the work we do, and in Australia and and pretty much all around the world, there's a lot of of scrutiny with this sort of work. So there's a lot of checks and balances. There's a lot of approvals that have to go through. So you just can't do this this sort of work in your backyard. You need to do this um, in in laboratories that are certified and it needs to be approved by the higher authorities. So there's a scrutiny involved. Yeah. It sounds, because Australia does have very strict um, regulations on it, that's that's fantastic. Yep. Does that um, does that change how the research is conducted in terms of when we have something like a pandemic? Zika is a really scary virus. How fast we can research those things when we have to go through all those approval steps? Um, yeah, that can make things a little bit difficult in that it often takes time to get approval. So, um, yes, there is a lag time. Um, sometimes you'll have uh, um, institutions fast-track approvals if they realise that the work is, is, ne- is needed to be done very quickly. 
Um, but it generally it takes probably a couple of months to get those approvals through because it's, it's got to be reviewed by a number of people. But, you know, if it is important, it can get fast-tracked. But I think that it's really good that we do have these processes in place. Yeah, I think it's it's necessary as, as it goes. Yeah. And one more thing that I was interested in you talking about, you said um, this particular type of research, both loss of function and gain of function, informs vaccine development. How does it do that? Well, it can actually, I mean, um, that, that's a big debate at the moment as to whether this sort of work will actually inform vaccine development. I haven't actually seen vaccine companies come out and say, well, we need to do this research to work out. But what it can do is it can actually um, give you a, a picture of how a virus actually infects a cell. So, for example, changes in the um, SARS-CoV-2 um, protein that binds to the outside of the cell, the ACE2 receptor, if you know more about that, protein, uh, it might inform how vaccines are developed and the, the immunogens that are used, okay? So if we can understand how a virus infects a cell, then we can be better informed on what sort of vaccines we need to make. So. Yeah, that makes sense. It's mm. really exciting to see all of this minute science go on behind the scenes that we don't necessarily know about until oh. the pandemic happens, which isn't yeah. the best time to learn about it. <laughs> yeah. There's lots of stuff going on behind the scenes, I can assure you. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking to me today, Michael. That was really, really interesting. No problems, a pleasure. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. Remember that you can head to cosmosmagazine.com via the link in the description for more great content. You can also subscribe to Cosmos Magazine, Australia's only science print magazine, and Cosmos Weekly, our online subscription-based deep dive into the biggest issues. You can watch and listen to all of our Cosmos briefings via the link that you'll also find in the description. And remember, if you support science and its communication, please support our work at the Royal Institution of Australia. I'm Chuck Smeaton. Today's interview was hosted by Dr Deborah Davis, and our executive producer is Catherine Roberts. Thank you. Thank you.